1: without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your
2: skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo.
1: Say this about investing. Everything you do learn is humility. What I learned
3: at 20 is you Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. Now, if you've just joined us for the very first time, a massive welcome to the Equity Mates community. Congrats on starting your investing journey. If you want to get up to speed, we have a podcast called Get Started Investing that will get you from zero to feeling confident getting into the markets. But with that said, my name is Bryce. And as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you? I'm
0: very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Uh, we love the fact here at Equity Mates that we. Get to connect with some of the best investors in the business, pick their brains, learn from them. And we've got a couple of experts that we're speaking to today and a member of the Equity Mates community. We're going to start with a call to Julian McCormick from Platinum Asset Management, or my coach, uh, Andrew Page, about how he's seeing the market. We're going to chat to one of our Equity Mates, Callum, about investing in energy stocks, and then back to Andrew to talk about one of the companies that's on the top of his watch list. Jam-packed episode today.
3: Yeah, a lot to cover. Now, a reminder that we are, we are licensed, but we're not aware of your financial circumstances. So, any information on this show is for education and entertainment purposes, and any advice is general. And if you missed last week's episode, we do have some news around FinFest 2023, with our current market conditions being a little bit challenging, and as a result, a lot of uh, the sponsors and partners that we work with on an annual basis, they uh, have started to pull back on marketing budget. And... The investment required to get FinFest to the amazing standard that we had it last year is quite significant. And given the current economic conditions, we have decided to pause FinFest until 2024 to give us more time to work on it so that it is no less than it was last year. And we want to make sure that the next one is even bigger and better. So I know a lot of you out there have uh, booked trips to Sydney. You have emailed us to ask if we're going to do anything on that weekend So we may do something in a pub just very casual so that those who have booked flights to Sydney can uh, still come and we can have a beer and catch up. But uh, otherwise, October the 26th, 2024, if you head to our website, you'll find more information. Uh, It's not over. We've just paused it and we're really excited for next year. So keep an eye on the website, as I said, because we're also intending to get around to some other cities in Australia later in the year.
0: And if you go to our website, you can sign up to the FinFest 2024 mailing list to keep up to date uh, with all of the updates, um, but yeah, we are, it's a tough one to make that call because we had so much fun last year, but yeah, we just couldn't quite make the dollars add up.
3: Yes, yes. Big commitment. However, the markets continue, Ren.
0: Yeah, the markets do continue. Uh,
3: <laughs> Inflation at 4% in the US, which I kind of glossed over a little bit last week, but it's um, it's pretty impressive.
0: This Isn't this the classic <laughs> example of uh, financial media? Yeah. Like when things are crashing, it's front page news yeah and then when things are getting better it's front page of business news yeah like the doom and the chaos gets clicks but uh as things are sort of normalizing and look we're a long way to normal but it is good news
3: it's pretty amazing to consider where it has come from I mean, it is potentially. And I've done no research on this, but it is potentially nice. one of the lowest rates of inflation in the Western world. I would imagine. I know the UK is still up around almost nine percent. Mm. They're T- battling. Turkey's
0: at hundred percent. S- so compared to that, we're doing <laughs> <Yeah>. really
3: well. <laughs> so yeah, the, it it was really glossed over last week, and and we're in a, we're in a bull market as we've discussed, and um, there was a, a massive IPO.
0: Have you ever heard of Carver? Carver. Is it yeah. that massive? Well, I mean, it's like it was a, a it's like a fast service restaurant. Yeah, but it was up a hundred percent. For people who are unfamiliar, it's um, it's like uh, Middle Eastern like bowls. Yeah, Mediterranean. Like, yeah, a lot of hummus. Yeah, you'd be right up your alley. Yeah, big time. Yeah, but it's yeah. like um, I'm thinking like a Guzman is kind of yeah, yes. quick yeah. service restaurant vibes. Yeah. So,
3: there's a lot of good, positive news coming out of the market at the moment.
0: Here's... Don't want to go too far down the Carver rabbit hole. I was in the US for almost a month. Didn't see
3: it. D- I didn't either. Yeah. But I feel like this is... You know, there are food chains in America that are quite... Not regional, but they're massive, but like centralized in just specific states and stuff. Like yeah. They're not national. Yeah. It's... Yeah. It's not like Australia where it's not that hard to... Like, you're either big or you're not. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway, with that uh, sage analysis, <laughs> let's keep moving. Yeah. So there are some positive signs. We're not out of the woods, but you can like see the edge of the tree line and the fields beyond it. Yes. Just really stretch that metaphor. Uh, U.S. inflation at four percent. IPO is happening. Reddit is trying to get its books in order mm, and mm. Uh, uh, up the price of its APIs because it's it's been talked about as an, as about to go public for about two years now, and it probably just missed the window in 2021. Um, but that's one I'm pretty excited for. Also, what Reddit did is exactly what Twitter did before it IPO'd. So it's not, it's not unprecedented. But in Australia, our inflation rate is a bit higher still. Seven, six. About that, yeah. Um, but we wanted to speak to Julian McCormick because he is focused on the US markets. Uh, he came on the podcast last year and had quite a bearish take. Uh, thought that the worst was still to come and we wanted to get him back on. If, if there's one thing we really admire about the best investors, it's their level of conviction and they can hold conviction uh, through, you know, periods where the market is telling them otherwise. Yeah. So we wanted to see if Julian was still convicted.
3: Yeah, he always has reams of uh, stats and information uh, available. So we, we gave him a call and here's Julian's view on where does the market go from here?
1: Domino's pizza. <laughs>
3: uh, uh, the inflation guys, five to eight fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, how are you? Good, good. How are you? Very well. That's good. Got I've got Very Ren well. here.
0: Yep. How's it going, Julian? Yeah, awesome, awesome. And are those two meat lovers pizzas coming or? <laughs> 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 I ordered them ages ago.
3: So Julian, we're in a we've just hit a bull market. First question is is this bull market real? And then I guess the follow-on from that is where to from here?
2: I I think the definitional thing about a bull market being up 20% is not all all that helpful. By that definition, we had, I mean, at least one and I think two bull markets in 2001 alone. I think we had a bull market in the first quarter or maybe first four odd months of 2008 as well. So I I just don't think it's very helpful. By implication, the, the answer to your question is no, it's not real in the sense that these are all probabilistic things, right? So the probability is very high that it's not real. Could it, could it be something else? Sure. Um, but the probability of this market uh, making meaningful new highs and continuing on um, ever higher looks pretty low given, given the following. So the odds of recession are extraordinarily high And we've only just started the credit contraction uh, in the US and earnings expectations haven't been taken down even remotely enough, probably, probably um, sort sort of across the board. So if you go and look at any of the coincident indicators of economic activity, they are cloudy at the absolute best. And pretty negative uh, at worst. The lagging indicators look kind of good, and the equity market is something in between. And I think what people look at in general when they're thinking about the state of the economy is GDP, unemployment, and the equity market, and none of them help you looking forward. And I know people will say, oh, but stocks discount the future and blah, blah, blah. They actually really don't a lot of the time. So stocks are terrible at discounting recession and discounting earnings um, shocks or contractions before time. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been surprised by 2008 or 2000 to 2003 or 1974, or, right? Why would it have been a surprise and why would markets have halved if stocks were discounted in the future? They weren't. Stocks are very good at dis- – and that, this is really interesting psychologically too, I think, uh, as an aside. Um, that, that, that's an in- interesting thing because stocks are very good at discounting the end of recessions. So as unemployment is rising and things are getting worse and worse and worse, markets, uh, economically, markets tend to bottom and start going up. So that is interesting. They do look, well, statistically, you know, we don't have a whole lot of recurrences, you know, and N isn't very high, but they look like they do discount the end of recessions and the emergence from recessions pretty well. And that could be what's happening now. You know that is what is happening in in a bunch of sectors that I look at you know sort of most closely in terms of investor behaviour. So investors, particularly in the states, are wanting to say, "Ah, we've had our contraction, and therefore I can go and buy early stage cyclicals like trucking or steel stocks to a lesser extent or um you know some of your sort of cyclical industrials, and that's possibly right. i I, I sort of doubt that, so. Just bear in mind that the very mild recession of 2001 corresponded to a 20% earnings decline in the States. The rather deep recession of 2008-9 saw a 50% fall in earnings. And we're looking at something like a 2%, maybe 4% fall in expected earnings in the States before hockey sticking up in Q3, Q4, and then growing 10% next year and 10% the year after. And that is all possible. But I just ask people to remember that we're now operating in a GDP one-ish percent growth, you know one point six last quarter, something like looks like one this quarter. And so earning, earnings growth was fantastic in very high GDP growth with loose financing conditions and and massive fiscal stimulus. The fiscal situation is now flat year-on-year year going forward. And we know what the Federal Reserve is doing, so they're not being accommodative, they're being quite the reverse. And earnings probably need to come down quite a lot. So, and, and when, I, when I say that, I think people will be surprised. Bank credit or commercial banks is growing at 1.4%. That's uh, a data point through to April. Red book sales, retail sales, that's growing at 0.6% year on year. That, and these are nominal numbers, not real. So, adjusted for inflation, volumes are falling year on year, and that red book number is through to uh, last week of May. You can people can and people won't be able to get red books on Bloomberg, but people can just Google uh, advanced retail sales uh, in the states. It's on, it's on Fred, which is the St. Louis Fed's thing. Uh, that's been flat for about a year in terms of dollar numbers. Seasonally non-seasonally adjusted new unemployment claims, they're, they're up uh sort of 15% year on year through to the last observation last week or the week before. Um, and it, and hours worked are going down and uh hourly earning well, household earnings are going down as well. And and so it this looks like a system that's creating lots of jobs, but what's happening is we're swapping expensive overtime for uh cheaper new employees. That's what that's what this system looks like it's doing. So, uh, look, the money supply is shrinking. That's incredibly unusual. Rail freight's down year on year. The cost of uh, trucking freight around the place is down, you know, 15%. That's very, very unusual. And yet we've got this, you know, really stubbornly high core inflation and activist central bank. And now, you know, a, a very, very genuine credit contraction that is probably only just starting. And we can see that in the senior loan officer survey type stuff, but the yield curve tells us that. Right? The yield curve is borrowing banks borrow short and lend long. And if we invert the yield curve, they have to borrow expensive and lend cheap. And they tend not to like doing that. So all of these things, all of these things just argue for immense caution. And just people just need to understand that you know, markets do this. In bear markets, you get ripping rallies. Probably, could it be something else? Absolutely. You know, I I don't know. (laughs) No no one does. That's why we're Um, calling you,
3: Julian. We want to (laughs) know.
2: I know. Um, But but I, I would just say that the stuff that everyone was bearish about in October and November is happening, and has happened, and the data is bad, and equity markets are good, and that's very disconcerting. By the way, like for folks who aren't really participating in this rally all that much, it's very very disconcerting, and that's normal. I mean, this is. This is hard. this game is quite difficult. so just, just remember I, I would just ask people to remember that there is probably more cause for caution now than when everyone was bearish in October and November. okay because it was in the price it was in the price back then. and so now there's this sort of real sense of uh, excitement and optimism and whatever and the data is way worse. Yeah. I mean retail sales, retail sales back then were growing at seven. they're now growing at 0.6. Right, and we've still got stubborn, still got stubborn inflation, and interest rates are one hundred and fifty points higher.
0: Yeah, but but now we've got AI. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah,
2: and and the and the AI thing is great because it's it, it it might be that Nvidia in particular is the greatest stock of all time, but it might just be that it's Oracle again or Cisco again, hmm. and they were they were fabulous business. Oh, well, Microsoft again. I mean, Microsoft. Was probably the best business in the world in 2000 and it went down 90%.
0: Yeah. 90%. Yeah.
2: Right. So by the time we got to 2010 or whatever, you wish you'd never heard of the thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Right?
2: So I'm not, that's not a prediction. It's just saying, Hey everybody, when you take a trillion dollar market cap company to, to that level of market cap on 20 times revenue, being pretty generous with the revenue, you have never got a good outcome. Like this this is, that that has never happened, (laughs) right? This might be the first, but hey, um, equally, equally, once it's got to 20 times sales, hey man, why can't it go to 40? It can, like totally, like
0: bubbles, bubble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bubbles bubbles be bubbling. Yeah. 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 Bubbles be bubbling. Um, So Julian, uh, a lot of what we just spoke about there is the US. Do you have any views back here at home? Rock solid, <laughs> 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 safe, as house, safe as houses. Oh, um, don't. <laughs> safe as houses has a particular meaning in Australia. <laughs> That's, right. why it, <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said it, mate. That's why I said it. Look,
4: I'm,
2: I'm, I really oscillate on Australia. Y- your listeners and you guys will know it better than me because I don't spend any time thinking out or looking at Australia. But, but. I, uh, very high household indebtedness and massive asset prices with with a small and open economy and a high migration. That, that's that been a fantastic recipe f- for success, but it doesn't have to be. And I'd point people to Sweden where, you know, last month retail sales in Sweden went down 11% and unemployment is 7 and life's pretty tough. And Sweden is... In some ways, you know, it's more sort of manufacturing than resources, but it, it, it is pretty similar to us. Lots of migration, very high asset prices, lots and lots of the household debt, and so it's interesting that we're relying on these truisms that have worked for the last three or four decades, which is oh well, no, nah, they'll just turn the they'll just turn the migration tap on. Yeah, well, what happens to your wages then? Mm-hmm. So so if we if you do get a problem, you get it pretty badly. Right, because you erode your own purchasing power to support the asset stuff. And I, I just think Australia is very simple at a 50,000 foot view. We just had a collateral spiral and that's what Japan did in the 80s. It's a milder version of it, but it's, it's still pretty strong. And what I mean by that is, you put more borrowing capacity into a system and then it's collateralized against something and then the borrowing capacity forces up the value of the collateral, and then that then pushes up the ability to lend more, and then that pushes up the value of collateral, and then that pushes up the... Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, how did that pan out in Japan? <laughs>
2: Not that well. Yeah. <laughs> Not so that well. the real price of houses fell like 90%. Wow. Oh. For 30 years.
0: Jeez, could you imagine? Mm. 90% fall in the real value of houses. That'd be. He'd
3: never recover
2: well you don't really and guys that's why people retired poor in the 80s mm. because they're. japan is a very very acute case and we're not our banking sector is not regulated like they were in the 80s it was farcical what they allowed to happen so don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not drawing equivalents i'm just using it as a cautionary tale much more apt is to remember that in in real terms um, the value of equities, particularly in the U.S., fell by about 75 to 80 percent from the late 60s through to the early 80s because you had pretty high inflation the whole time. And whilst it didn't feel like it went nowhere because stuff went up and down and up and down and up and down, you never went anywhere, anywhere in terms of capital appreciation from 67 to 82. And Australia was a bit better than that, but we still we still had that real erosion. Uh, because of the influence of inflation and we're we're just sort of pretending we don't have this devil's bargain which is for the good of you know the, the the value of future promises you do have to get inflation out of the system and that is what central banks all over the west are telling us but the equity market's saying yeah cool because and, and that means i can go and buy them tomorrow but but probably you need to crush earnings much lower every single time you get an the onset of inflationary boom, your earnings go up. Because just simply put, arithmetically, any business that has a positive margin, your your revenue line is bigger than your cost line. So if you inflate them both, your margins go up. It's just really simple stuff. If you're running a milk bar, you'll know if you've got inventory out the back and the what you can sell it for goes up, but you don't have to get more inventory in, you make more money that happens that's what just happened so now we're forcing down producer prices and consumer prices from from very very high levels of margin and thinking it's all going to be good it could be but it would be pretty unusual and this is none of this is the end of the world what i think any of this is it's just going to be like the early 90s or the early 80s and probably a bit of a milder version of the early 70s where you had two you know pretty big pretty big bear markets
0: well nice we got we got through those periods so we will get through that's
2: exactly right and the most important thing now is to have a bit of caution i i think now that everyone's really excited and just remember that when everyone's sort of soiling themselves again in a few months or a few years or whenever that's when you can have another go at things but it, I, it really is time for very extreme caution, I think.
3: Awesome, Julian. Well, I think that's a great spot to leave it. Um, it's always so interesting listening to hear what you have to say. So, uh, I know no doubt the Equitymates community will have, um, will have really taken a lot from that. But uh, we appreciate the time. Um,
2: now, you've got to, re- you've got to remember that to come and talk to me when everyone's sort of really worried.
3: Because then you'll be like, let's <laughs> go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's yeah, go. The <laughs> this. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. well... Yes, you're on our
1: speed
3: dial. So Ren, it was great to hear from Julian and for me, no surprises as to what he said. As you said at the top there, the good investors have such strong conviction and uh, Julian hasn't changed his tune. Has the data to back it up from his point of view. Obviously feels there is more to come and, and history has shown that there are plenty of times where A bull market like we're in is only a blip in a larger bear.
0: Yeah, what he said about you know this happened in two thousand and one and two thousand and eight, and then we've got another leg down is an important reminder. So Bryce, we say that good investors have conviction. You walk around the office telling everyone that you're a good investor. You you play (laughs) my portfolio (laughs) proves I'm a good. You play a good investor on a podcast. (laughs) What's your level of conviction?
3: Oh, mate, th- th- I'm just the conduit. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not throwing out. I'm not throwing out. Uh, forecasting is for fools. I play what's in front of me. Nice. Oh, yes. Yeah, and in front of me right now is the bull like,
0: Just like Pat Cummins on the end of the fifth day. <laughs> yes. He just plays what's in front of him. Yes.
3: <laughs> no, look, I obviously don't have... Um, I'm nowhere near as... Uh, I don't have the level of conviction that Julian does. I, I don't know where it goes from here. I just enjoy hearing both sides. and it, It's one of those confirmation biases. I could go out and find all the articles in the world to say that we're all good and super positive and this is where we go. And then you can go to the flip side and find all the articles and to talk to people in the world where it goes the other way. So I, I sit in the middle. What about you?
0: I have incredible conviction, like 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100 conviction that over the long term, the stock market <laughs> will be up. And I have zero incentive to play a shorter game than that. I don't have the career risk that people working in asset management have. You know, They have to be right in the short term and outperform their peers to get promoted, to get bonuses. I don't have the uh, competitive tension that people that run their own funds have where they need to outperform benchmarks year after year to keep money in their funds. As an everyday investor, I can be purely focused on the long term. And so for me, it doesn't really matter if the US stock market is up 10% or down 10% in the next six months, because I know that either way, I'm going to dollar cost average in and try and find great companies. So um, it's you can play different games in the stock market. And Julian, because he's at Platinum, because their investors expect them to outperform, that's the game he has to play. And I love learning about that game, but I love being able to opt out of that game as well.
3: Mm. Well, speaking of finding great companies, let's move to your mentored.
0: Yeah, let's do it. So uh, for people who are new to the show, welcome. Uh, As part of uh, Bryce and I's ongoing journey to keep learning, become better investors, we've each found a coach, a mentor, a sensei uh, this year, and uh, we're sitting down with them, uh, asking the questions that we have and just continuing the journey of becoming better investors. And recording it all and last week I sat down with Andrew Page from Strawman and just had a chat with him about uh, the stock market how he's seeing some of the these areas of hype and then uh, we got stuck into some uh, individual company chat. but much like what we just heard with Julian I just wanted to start with how Andrew's seeing this current moment um, because there's a lot there's a lot going on let's start let's start with just what's happening in markets because we're in June we're almost uh, halfway through the year and it's clear that the biggest thing at the moment is AI hype. It really started with ChatGPT at the start of the year, but Nvidia their quarterly update put some very big numbers out there in terms of their forecasts and now everyone's claiming to be an AI company and there's some pretty funny examples we've seen in Australia. Temple and Webster is one that Bryce and I have been joking about.
4: Oh no, what did they
0: say? Oh, well, they're now integrated with AI. So uh, selling furniture is enhanced by AI. <laughs> I think they, they rewrote all their product descriptions with ChatGPT, uh, okay. some customer service stuff. The funniest one in the finance space, Doe, the micro-investing app, uh, put, put out an ASX release saying they were the first micro-investing app to integrate with ChatGPT. <laughs> Not sure Why? But anyway, the hype is real. Uh, you're always a rational voice when it comes to stuff like this. So, what's your take on it all?
4: So, so this is not my first rodeo. I've been through a number of different hype cycles. The earliest one being when I really, when I first started, was right in the middle of the dot com boom. And I mean, you talk about a lot of hot air and speculation, but also with sort of SaaS and mobile wave and and various other things. Like to be fair, with these situations only arise when there's a nugget of truth to it. I'm Personally, I'm really bullish AI. I mean, this is amazing technology and even since Chat GPT three came out, like we've seen the evolution like just so rapid here. So I think it's huge, right? I think I think as a as a sector, I think we've gone we've crossed the chasm a little bit from what is theoretically possible to actually having workable demos and beyond demos of, of it actually happening. So so there's legitimacy to it. But people jump on bandwagons really quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um a lot of companies we've come across are talking about it more i think one insight that's worth remembering is that it's not that these small asx companies need to develop the ai is that this is plug and play technology where to a large extent you, you you're not developing the large language models but you're applying them in much the same way that you know these companies didn't invent the internet back at the turn of the century but but used it so I, I think a lot of companies will be using it, should be using it. Like just competitively, you're going to be at a disadvantage. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about over a period of years here, right? So there is legitimacy to it. But the question you've got to ask is, is that what what edge does this give you? And from that angle, my hot take is that companies best able to leverage it in a way more so than their competitors, are those that have proprietary data sets. Mm. Anyone can point an AI at a set of data if it's public, and we can all extract useful information from that. At least that's the potential. But when I, if I'm Volpara, and I own all the breast imaging, uh, uh, images data, you know, if I'm... um, uh, Catapult and I own all the sports analytics data if I'm EnviroSuite and I own all, you know, that, that it, it actually, I can use it as much as anyone else can, but I've, it, as we know with AI, a key part of it is the data set that you can train it on and then extract it from. So I guess my very long answer, mate, but I, I think my take home is there's legitimacy to it But 90% plus of what you see is absolute hype.
0: I don't know if you remember, but like in the early 2010s, uh, there was all this data is the new oil. And like the Economist would put it on the front of their magazine and stuff like that. And it always felt a bit how you're going. It's like, you know, Facebook and Google were monetizing data, but most companies were collecting a lot of data and not really figuring out what to do with it. Exactly. It feels like this AI is the unlock to make that true.
4: Yes. So Charlie Munger, right? He's no idiot. And he was on record i 'm going to forget the quote, but the paraphrase he said something about the internet 's not that big a deal because while it 'll be good for society it won 't be good for businesses because everyone will use it it's it 's essentially a commodity in nature, which was actually a really i thought decent take i mean it 's easy to be critical of that view with the benefit of hindsight, but at the time I, I thought it was a a contrarian but useful sort of insight and in a lot of ways it was kind of right you know you guys use the internet for your business I do it for mine well, so what we all we all kind of do what he didn't recognize was that a lot of the value was going to be captured by a very small handful mm. of companies mm. like the Google's and the Facebook's and the Apple's and and, and this kind of stuff and it was actually the it was sort of the centralization of that data and the moats and the network effects that built around that kind of stuff so I know enough not to try and be hyper specific in any sort of forecast here. I think the thing is with AI, much like the metaverse, which we can talk about too, is and you know Apple's new n- new product, is that I expect that with the, in another twenty years' time, we will look back at what that technology is and does and how it's applied, and some of the bigger use cases will be something that's not even on on our radar. Mm, yeah, there's this yeah. really great interview of Bill Gates on the David Letterman show to age myself, you know, the Late Show where Bill Gates is on and David Letterman's going like, so what can I do in the internet? Oh, you can listen to your favorite sports broadcast and you can read the newspaper and you can send messages to your friends. And it was kind of like true, but here's the guy on the front bleeding edge of that technology who was right to expect that it was going to be world-changing and the much as much as he could imagine was just basically a form of radio and digital newspaper which you just miss the point of the internet yeah i think i i think ai will be the same right so i i wouldn't touch anything just because it's sprouting ai i'd want to actually sort of see viable use cases from that develop and if it's right this thematic has a long way to play out. it's 2023 right this is like decades after the the internet right and and it's still evolving and growing so a lot of people will get burnt in the way and there'll be a lot of bubbles popped i'm sure
0: yeah well speaking of new technology you mentioned apple's product launch and it feels like it's the topic on everyone's lips and i've got to ask what you think about it any any hot takes there
4: um, i actually saw an awesome hot take i don't know if i agree with it but i saw someone on twitter and apologies i'm not going to be able to credit them but it because i just can't remember but they said it was like a, a larry's latte moment i don't know if you've ever watched any curb your enthusiasm
0: where he he sets up like the revenge store yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he doesn't like the the cafe
4: owner so he opens up a, a cafe next yeah. to just, just out of spite it's a spite, <laughs> a business. spite store, yeah. and on the 10 percent chance that you know that this is the, what the article was saying, that Zuck is right and the metaverse is the next sort of big thing. We're going to be there. I don't agree with that. I, I'm actually really bullish on uh, augmented reality and VR. It's it's one of those technologies that I think is very easy to sort of see how attractive and powerful it could be. It's just that there's two parts to it. The hardware has not, until perhaps recently, gotten to a stage where it is really practical and really accessible. They're pretty expensive, these, these sort of headsets. But the bigger problem is the app ecosystem that's around it so I had uh, I played around with an Oculus a little while ago maybe last year or so it was really cool right I, I assume And when you look at the specs of Apple's product it's just like through the roof it's 4k faster resolution apparently you don't get the motion sickness but there was there wasn't you know I could do uh, Beat Saber which is an awesome game you know I could I could watch a YouTube video in a novel way but there just wasn't that much around imagine the iPhone The only app that was... We just still had Angry Birds and some mail apps. Mm. Like, it's sort of... it's The reason that the iPhone, the smartphone in general, took off was the positive feedback loop provided by the related apps. So you've got a really good uh, new interface, new way of interacting. Um, I'm going to build apps for that. That's going to make the iPhone more uh, attractive. The more people that have iPhones, the more I'm likely to develop for this platform because I'm going to get them... And it just it fed on itself massively. So I think Apple... This is gonna be a long game for them, but I think what you really wanna see is some of the talked about use cases and products and associated architecture around it being developed at the same time, and then it becomes a lot more
0: powerful. Well, let's close out this just general market chat before we get into some investing specific stuff by coming back home. We're about halfway through the year. ASX 200, despite all of the concern at the start of the year, the ASX 200 is up 3% year to date. What's your take on how the market's gone six months in and where to for the next six?
4: Yeah, like this is why I don't time (laughs) markets. So you just can't predict it. And I think a lot of the bears, the, the arguments that they made, I don't think necessarily a lot of those risk factors have gone away. In fact, in some cases, they've kind of accelerated. I know of a few investors who have not had real losses, but suffered massive opportunity cost losses. Because they just sit on the sidelines, waiting for this crash that not, sort of never comes. And maybe you will be right eventually. But if if you've sat on the sideline watching markets go up fifty percent and then you get a twenty percent dip, and then you buy, like you know, it's, you've not yeah, you're still behind yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this isn't an argument to say I oh, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. I just it's actually to say I have I have no idea. Other than markets are always surprising in in the short term. I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, it's not just year to date. Let's take a longer lens. You know, it's, it's the all ordinaries is really not that far off its all-time high, which I think it hit in November 21 or late 2021. Given everything that's happened with bank collapses and the sell-off in tech and surging interest rates, which are the real elephant in the room here, it's like, uh, it's not too bad. It's certainly a lot better than the NASDAQ and other, other things. A story of commodity prices and other, just sort of the weighting of, of, our, of our index. So you do get a, it's it's, it's uh, interesting to look at it through a different lens. So the All Technologies Index, so this is a subset of the All Lords, which is focused obviously on technology stocks. That's up 15% for the year. Now, again, context matters. It's down 29% since late 2021. So, you know, but it, it shows you the extra sort of volatility within that. But it also shows you where the heavy lifting is coming, which is the same
0: factor in, in, the, in the US. You, you said it was worse than the NASDAQ, but the NASDAQ's up 37% year to date. Oh, there you go. Okay, so
4: <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I should have said the S&P 500. It was the S&P 500 where if you take out the top... The top six, yeah, like,
0: top seven, it's just like basically flat. I think it's up 2% without the top seven. I think this
4: is really interesting because I think it, it argues very much that if you're going to be a stock picker, that, and by the way, this is generally true over times and all kinds of market conditions, that if you were to ever take out a really small subset of the market at any point in time, like the, like the, the returns are awful.
0: I think the stat is 4% of listed companies have driven the overall outperformance of the stock market.
4: Sounds right. Yeah. So one in Less than 1 in 20 companies, right? And so what that says to you is that if you're going to miss out on that 1 in 20, you're not going to get anywhere near the market returns. Yeah,
0: it's often why people misunderstand index investing. Index investing isn't because you want to own a little bit of everything and everything performs about average. It's because you don't want to miss out on the few that will build your wealth.
4: You nailed it, man. You absolutely nailed it. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's just like when I own the VAS or something ETF, I guarantee that I own at least a part of what's going to be probably one of the, the better performing stocks over the next 10 years. Definitely, yeah. And I know that, that a whole bunch of the stocks in that industry are going to do absolutely terribly or just mediocre, right? But that's, that's cool. I actually, I actually invest directly very much on that, on that premise in the sense that for me, it's not about strike rate. For me, it's about the average. And so I fully expect when I look at my, my portfolio, I, you know, at least 60%, I'm not going to cover myself in glory, yeah. right? There'll be companies I talk about and just like, no, didn't work out. But it's not a, oh, no, that's that uh, something's fundamentally wrong. If your thesis is, look, I am trying to find, I'm trying to put the odds in my favor of getting those 10Xs. Because if I've got a stock portfolio of 10 to 15 stocks and I get one of them, even if the rest go to zero and one does a 20X, that's a prometicus, does an Objective Corp, does a Nanasonics, does an Ordinate, does, you know, it actually, the maths works out yeah. really favorably. Do yeah. you know? And, and, and I think that where you need to... Have a little bit of discipline. There is is recognizing when thesis are clearly broken and, and getting out. But also, and this is the harder part, having the emotional fortitude to to not lock in profits because that strategy falls flat on its face as soon as you get a thirty percent gain on. I mean, can you imagine anything more painful than being the person that bought Amazon? I don't know, at three bucks and sold at 10, thinking I'm a genius. And and by the way, I've done that a million, well, not a million times, but I've done that loads, right?
0: Well, I think a lot of Australians lived through that with Afterpay. They doubled their money on Afterpay and then saw it go 10x from where they they sold. The lesson
4: is if the company is executing, like it will go through periods of extreme and even silly valuations, so Objective Corp I mentioned before, so just a very quick shout out, because I wrote about this recently. So if you don't know it, OCL is the ticker. It's a masterclass in capital allocation. It's just a phenomenal business. But in 2015, you could have bought shares at 2 bucks a share, right? And now they're 13 They got up to above 20 recently, so they've sold off with some of the techs. But it's still, you know, the business is just kicking goals. But what's interesting, had you bought in 2015, that would have been after a 10x gain already, because in 2012, it was $0.20. Cents. So the people buying in 2012, actually, it's not like the business didn't do well. It grew. It's I think its revenues and profits grew 25% over that three-year period. But that's not that's not super compound annual growth. It's good growth, and they were laying the foundations. And it, but here's the thing: the PE was at like 12 or 13 in, in 2012. So it was like it was insanely cheap, objectively so. Excuse the pun, but <laughs> but imagine the person who bought then. And then sold in 2015 going, well, now the, the, the yeah, the shares have done well because I expected that, or the business has done well and that's what I was sort of basing my investment on. But I didn't base, I didn't base this 10x on a massive multiple expansion and now things just look a bit silly. But the lesson was actually selling was the dumbest thing to do because it actually, you know, it went up another eightfold from, from or not yeah, about eightfold from there. So... Um, it, it is, it is, uh, you've got to be careful of weightings and the rest of it. But I think if you're going to adopt this approach that when you catch a monster, you know, a baby giant, if you will, and you jag one, you want to hang on to that for dear life. And it's not like you completely ignore valuation, but you need to be much more lenient on valuation for very, very high qualities with genuine business momentum and execution.
0: What, one thing that I love about listening to Andrew is he just peppers you with examples of companies mm. you know there was a there was a moment there where it was like uh objective Corp, nanosonics ordinate and mm. i'm just uh frantically writing down all these asx company names to go and research afterwards he
3: loves the small ones yeah what's what was the one that we spoke to him about years ago um the church um pay pass payment system oh
0: um it was it eml payments no no I've just done some Googling, Bryce. It was push pay.
3: Push pay, yes.
0: No idea how it's gone since.
3: Well, we can also do some research (laughs) on that. (laughs) All right, Rain. well, we're gonna take a very quick break. And on the other side, we're gonna hear from one of our community members, Callum, to discuss energy, and then jump into one of the stocks that is at the top of Andrew's watch list that he's teased out over the last couple of sessions with you, a company that is 10 million market cap, profitable, And has $100 million in revenue.
0: I was wrong last time. Let's see if I can guess it this time.
3: We'll be right back straight after this.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new custom spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves, without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com code LISTEN.
3: Hello, it is Bryce from Equitymates. Am I speaking with Callum? Yeah. Nice. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good, mate. I am here with Ren as well. There, well, we love chatting with the EquityMates community. So thank you for giving us uh, giving us your time.
0: You commented on the Facebook group, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. yeah,
3: you jumped into the Facebook community to ask about. Um, getting exposure or access and investing in the energy industry—is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I said a long-time worker, first-time poster, <laughs> <Nice>. um,
0: <laughs>
3: and yeah, I, was, I just basically posted because I was just after some general advice, and I wasn't really sure how to think about energy stocks in a defensive sort of way. I've heard about people um, talking about using those sort of stocks as a like defensive when things are going a bit bad for your stocks and then just how to compare the different companies and what to think about and all that sort of stuff
0: and when you when you say energy do you mean like the um downstream like the the retail uh energy retailers like your agls and your origins or you mean more like upstream producers like your oil companies and your coal miners and stuff like that uh, I'm, I'm
3: at the retail yeah
0: yeah okay so I think uh, when you're thinking about like those downstream retail players, the key thing that you've got to think about is, so on, on one side they're retailing to people like us, to businesses, they're selling electricity, which is really a commodity. Um, and all states in Australia outside of Vic and SA have some regulations on the price of electricity or gas, or like electricity or gas retail prices. So there are some price controls on that side when you've got a business where the price that you can charge is pretty fixed but the price that you pay is floating that's somewhat risky you either have to be able to procure at a lower cost you have to be really good at hedging price risk or you can get squeezed on price and that's that's what some of the I think last year or the year before when energy prices really got high AGL and Origin really got squeezed, and I think they weren't profitable for a few halves because they just didn't manage the price that they were paying for electricity, and then the price that they were charging, re- like charging, was regulated, and so they ended up not making money. You want to find the like the low cost operator if prices are fixed is essentially what I'm saying in a really long and roundabout <laughs> way.
3: I would also challenge that uh, like traditionally there are probably better defensive. Sectors. I don't actually invest directly in any energy company. I don't think I ever have, from memory. um, Obviously, outside of superannuation and and a lot of the index funds that I hold, but it's, it's too cyclical for me. Is Is the issue how about this are there any specific energy companies that you're interested in because i have an episode coming up with old mate henry jennings before we fly out that i'm sure i could get his take on he
0: he would have some things to say he would have some things
3: to say uh are there any uh, any stocks that i could take to him for a quick yay or nay not not off the top of my head i guess um i'd want to look at look at some stuff that's uh a bit further upstream right because you pointed me
0: towards um, the uh, etf fuel i think and quite a lot of that's outside of australia
3: isn't it yeah so fuel is the beta shares etf and i think they just track global energy
0: so they've got a lot of the big oil companies they've yeah. got like uh chevron exxon yeah yeah uh shell
3: so that's a good one to start for inspiration at least
0: so i've got the list here Biggest holdings. Chevron, Exxon, Shell, Total, B P, Conoco, Phillips. So top six all oil. It doesn't feel
3: good. Five of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean you, you would have you, you would have <laughs> had a, You would have had a great year last year was all, no, the year before oil. Last ripped. year was the trade
3: when Ukraine got invaded. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: I actually don't really understand why this is the case, but what we've heard from a few experts is that solar is essentially a commodity. Like anyone can create solar panels, they're not expensive to install. That's why we put them on our roofs and everywhere. And China makes them cheaper than everyone else, but it's really a race to the bottom. There's not a lot of margin on solar panels. Whereas, wind, there's like three big companies in the world that make wind turbines. And so, and for some reason, they're not a commodity. Um, and Vestas is one that is over in Europe that is a big wind. I think Mary Manning spoke to us about that back in the day, so that might be one to look at. That's just me just remembering something. That's certainly not certainly not investment advice.
3: Yeah, I've just asked Bard about Vestas. It's a Danish manufacturer, seller, installer, and service servicer of wind turbines, world's largest wind turbine manufacturer with over 29,000 employees. There you go. They cre- they have installed over 166 gigawatts of wind turbines, enough to power over 60 million homes. Nice. Well yeah. played, Bard.
0: <laughs> For me, it's like energy is a tough business. Upstri- upstream, it's a commodity and you, you deal with the price cycle. Yeah. Downstream, you deal with sort of price controls and stuff like that. But it's necessary and there are going to be big winners. But I... I don't have any names that come to mind if I'm trying to pick them. Yeah, yeah.
3: I'm happy to uh, take a few ideas to. Yeah, let's go to, to a real to Henry, um, <laughs> and we'll hit you up afterwards, Callum, and if he has any ideas on on what to look at in in the both upstream and downstream, or whether it's a good idea at all. I think for me, as we've said, it's it's a cyclical part of the market. It's volatile. Prices are volatile, so you do need to pay a little bit more attention to it than perhaps some of the other sectors that you can invest in. But have a great uh, have a great evening, Colin. Appreciate yeah. the
0: call. Good luck with it all. Yeah, I appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, catch See you.
3: Bye. Bye-bye. If you'd like to speak with us on the show, hit us up at contact at equitymates.com or join us in the Facebook discussion group. So Ren, a couple of episodes ago in one of your sessions, Andrew teased that he had a company on his watch list right at the top of his watch list that was a 10 million market cap that was profitable and that was doing $100 million in revenue. One that you've been trying to figure out. You've had one guess, yep. got he, it wrong.
0: Then he gave me another clue. Oh, what was the clue? Uh, he So he told me that it had hundred did okay. $100 million in revenue. Yeah, nice. And so I put my stock screen skills to the test. Uh, before that clue, there was about 50 or so Australian companies that were valued around $10 million and were profitable. And then add in $100 million, it narrowed it down to 17. Wow. Still a lot that I could get wrong. Um, luckily, uh, someone from the Mates community came in and really helped me out.
3: Oh, nice. Nice. Well, um, let's get stuck into it.
0: One thing that has been a bit of a through line through our conversation is me trying to guess this WA company uh, that you mentioned Mm -hmm. and I guess putting my stock screener skills to the test. So the clues that we had were that it's a profitable Western Australian based company, $10 million market cap or thereabouts and more than a hundred million in revenue. Mm -hmm. And this was a company that was doing the rounds on straw man and and was uh, an interesting one. Mm. People hit us up in our Instagram DMs and helped us narrow it down. I, I put those criteria in a stock screener. Yep. And there were 17 Australian companies that came back. Um, including some interesting ones. Yellow Brick Road, Mark Boris's company. $20 million market cap, $290 million in revenue. Not profitable though. Booktopia, the online bookseller. $26 million market cap, $240 million in revenue. Also not profitable. But... Kit, in our Instagram DMs, uh, suggested it was Stealth Global Holdings. Hey! Yeah. Is that right? That's it. <laughs> SGI. Yeah. All right. Well, shout out to Kit. Well done. Now, a cursory look at the company. It's an Australian-based distributor of industrial safety, truck, and automotive and workplace supplies. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get you to tell me what, how you would describe what it does in a second. But ticked all the boxes. Headquartered in Perth, $11 million market cap, $99.6 million in revenue last year, only six hundred grand in profits. Yep. Tough margins. Very uh, thin. So, I'll ask you about that, but uh, tell us about the company. Why is it one that's interesting to you? I
4: came across this through one of our members on Strawman. So, a shout out to Dr. Pete. Uh, he described it as the Bunnings for industrial sort of companies. So, they'll sell everything from, you know, drill bits to high vis vests to ear protection kind of stuff. They make this claim that ninety five percent of their products are non discretionary. Which I, look, there's some legitimacy to it. I think what that means is that their customers are in business. You kind of, and you're on industrial sites, you need this kind of gear. Like you don't, Mm. you don't decide to like not replace the blades in your your tools and all of these kinds of things. But I I, I do think they are over egging it a little bit there. There's obviously some, (laughs) there's obviously some variability uh, depending on what the customer demand is, but it's a industry in Australia. We've spoken to the CEO a couple of times that is very fragmented and, When you look at similar business models overseas, they're much more aggregated. And generally speaking, low margin, high volume businesses are pretty ordinary, but they get a lot better and they get better moats at scale. So you just get to centralize a lot more of your admin and office costs and the rest, but you get better efficiencies with warehousing and you get better pricing terms from the people that you're ultimately buying it from. So scale matters, and they're very deliberately sort of gone for this kind of strategy. They've made a number of bolt-on acquisitions. You are 100% right. This is a story that's all about margins. And so margins have been depressed as they've sort of been vesting for growth. But the comparables in the US, so same business, same sector, just different market. They tend to get EBIT margins, I believe it's around 12% or so. Mike Arnold, the CEO, says they've got a target for 8%. Now, just because that's their aspiration, are they going to do it?
0: Well, I guess like how do you go from less than one percent to eight percent?
4: Well, the short answer is is that you continue to grow revenues, and their revenues have grown pretty well, right? Let's—they're going to do somewhere around one hundred and ten million this year, and part of that's inorganic, but also part of it is is organic. But your cost—you're going to get much more flex out of your assets, your warehouses, and all of these kinds of things. You're just pushing more volume through that. Your fixed cost components aren't, aren't rising, so you get to capture more of that gross margin at the bottom line. Is is sort of the argument here? But
0: they're not a software business, like yeah. But operating leverage is still real in other businesses. yeah, yeah. But not to the same, not to the same extent. Not to that's not eight percentage points of margin right there.
4: So the gross margins are what you've got to look. So a, a SaaS company is going to have gross margin or should have gross margins like you know 90 percent mm-hmm. plus, right? And that's like I think they're fifty percent. So you're right, hundred percent, right? Like that's that's very true. But I think if this was a company that was trading at a different valuation, I just w- wouldn't look at it. But it's a very deep value play layered onto a company that seems to be aggregating fairly well and still delivering decent growth with some decent industry tailwinds. In the sense that there's a lot of onshoring given sort of geopolitical tensions. If you were, even if you're a bit bearish on sort of the macro scene, I I can see a lot of. Infrastructure spending, stimulatory sort of efforts. You're going to need these kinds of um, uh, companies to sort of help that. But I here's my here's my argument to you, and we'll get into this more when we talk about valuations. Is that I think it's wrong to just take management's aspiration. And go, oh, he said eight percent, so they're going to get eight percent. And oh my gosh, if you apply eight percent margin to the <laughs> to the, oh, they, you know, they're on a P of three. But but I think evaluation is as much about scenario testing as it trying to legitimately just specifically e- end up on the exact valuation. And so you can say, well, let's say things don't quite go to plan. Let's say the top line really just hovers around, you know, maybe it's a bit below ten percent, seven, eight, nine percent, and the net margins only get to two percent. There's a huge margin of safety in yeah. there, in the sense that if they don't execute well. Well, you're still holding a profitable business here, a real business uh, with real assets. Uh, I think there's a lot of asymmetry in the price. If they start to get some margin improvement, there's some tentative signs on that. They seem to be signaling a pretty strong conviction on their capital situation by suggesting they're going to start paying dividends in the not-too-distant future as well, which you can only really do if you've got free cash flows and the rest of it. So I feel as though... As a company that's like spent a lot of years building up the base, they've got a clear strategy, a fragmented market. It's not just about roll-ups. There's demonstrated organic growth within all of that. And as the business sort of grows into itself and unlocks not SaaS operating leverage, but nevertheless some some scale advantages and operating, you kind of get to even when you start factoring in pretty low margins, it just seems It just seems overly cheap
0: to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to be so negative, but I guess, you know, I I come from a retail background. Coles and Woolworths are on sort of high 2% net margins. Uh, West Farmers is a conglomerate, which includes Bunnings, obviously, and Kmart, and... Target and Officeworks, I think are on 6% net margin. So they've got scale.
4: <laughs> By the way, I love the pushback. I mean, this is this is exactly the kind of conversations you want to have. And there's such legitimate questions that, that, that you're asking. So if, if the margins don't start to widen and reasonably soon, thesis busted right you know it, it, it's it's fully within the probability set that that, that could happen well, I mean what? I mean
0: you know at some they just got to keep growing their revenue they you know they get to a billion yep. in revenue and all of a sudden that uh, 600,000 in profit becomes six million in profit
4: I'll give you a maybe a contrarian take on this but I have come to the conclusion they're not in all cases but in many low margins are remote.
0: Yeah, this is the classic Amazon argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it takes... You've got to be careful with that. I mean,
4: there are things that are very low margin because it's just absolute commodity in nature. And wherever a decent margin arises for whatever reason, supplier-side responses tend to sort of nullify that. It's why it's why commodities always trade. And I'm using commodities in a broad sense. I, I would classify an airline seat as a, as a mm-hmm. commodity. Right?
0: Or in this case, you're talking about like... Uh, Head, like safety goggles and uh, earplugs and stuff on a work site.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many different... They call them SKU stock keeping units. There's a whole bunch of products. But yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, but let's say that you and... I, now, I'm getting these margins um, even though the fact my scale gives me much more favourable buying terms than the smaller guys. So if I want to get into this sort of game, I've got to build volumes up to, a, to, a, to, to your level before I can even get that that sort of uh, variable cost mm. base, a- and then I've got to be comfortable with two percent. Then I've, I've got I'm basically offering a similar service for the same kind of price. So it's hard to it's it, if it can be maintained, um, it it, and it's it's not it's not predicated on you know, it's not something you just fall away instantly for one one bag quarter. I actually think it it keeps people away, keeps competitors away.
0: Well, on that one last question on this, and then let's move to some valuation work. Um, you said it was the, it was similar to the Bunnings. Oh, when it was first pitched on Strawman, it was pitched as the Bunnings of industrial work sites. In, What's yeah. stopping Bunnings becoming the Bunnings of industrial work sites? <laughs>
4: well, it, I, I guess they would have some synergies, but I mean, think of their infrastructure in place, you know, and all of the warehousing and uh, shop fronts and all of that kind of stuff that they have. It's kind of well, I wouldn't say at capacity, but, you know, it's, it's being used for a very specific segment. It's a pretty big pivot for them to get into it and would require a pretty big investment. It would be a real worry if they did, but it would be – it's also when you look at the relative scale, I think, of those markets. I, I don't see it as something that, that they would get into, but a, a big player prepared to run at even smaller margins – with entrenched advantages in terms of the assets they've got, yeah, that, that'd make me think twice. Or,
0: or West Farmers just buys Stealth for eleven million dollars and bolts well, this is the it other <laughs> thing, right? Like,
4: think about the setup costs. Like, so I'm just like, oh, I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna, oh, I might even like pay a premium to make sure I wrest it from from management's hands and yeah, in the insiders, yeah, yeah. and just pay twenty million dollars. <laughs> it's still, you know, it's it's a drop in the ocean for those kinds of guys. So. I, th- this is I should be careful here, so just I really want to underscore this. Remember what I said before? I fully expect six out of 10. <laughs> I'm sandbagging here. Right? <laughs> so yeah, like I, I'm not betting the farm on this one. I just think it's an interesting one. Also bear in mind, it is hyper-hyper-illiquid.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's important to stress.
4: And and that it, it, there are fund managers who might look at it and go, I like it. They're not going to buy it because they can't, all right? So it's just sort of it, – it'll be – I suspect if it does work, and maybe it won't, but if it does work, it'll be me sitting on this damn thing for another year or so at 12 cents or maybe longer, and then one day just sort of like it becomes too hard to ignore, and then it jumps to like 20 or 30 cents. And I'd, I'd also argue for me it's not – I think you go into an investment, you've got to be very careful to specify what type of investment. I mean, I'm a certain type of investor, but I will make different types of investments. So if I'm holding like a something I feel has a multi-decade runway of high compound growth. Like I said before, with an objective or something, I'm I'm probably not going to overthink that. If this thing, for whatever reason, popped to 25 cents tomorrow, I'd probably take the money and run. Not because I'm a trader, but because this is very much, I've categorized this as very much a deep value play. Mm. And once that, va- or if that value gap is closed, it it's harder. to, I either need to change the investment thesis or I need to accept that it's realized. And it'll be hard because if that happens, I'm sure I will. And then it'll jump another 50% from there. But, but it's just being logically and rationally consistent and, and sticking, sticking to the broader investment case. Yeah,
0: that is the challenge, being logical and rational. In an
4: irrational market, very hard.
0: All right, Bryce, Stealth Global Holdings. Have you heard of it?
4: No, have an hour.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's I guess it's a reminder of just how many companies are out there just, you know, doing something. (laughs) (laughs) Not glamorous, not sexy, but doing something that uh, obviously is in demand and $100 million in revenue is nothing to sneeze at. Um, You know, obviously nothing that we speak about on this show is advice. Um, this isn't that definitely wasn't a buy, hold, or sell recommendation from Andrew, but um, it's interesting to see how he thinks about companies and importantly, how he thinks about margin of safety and also like the catalyst for growth. Uh, it's probably not one that gets me super excited, but that's the beauty of investing.
3: That is the beauty of investing, Ren. Definitely one to put on the watch list. We'll uh, include this on our portfolio page on our website where you can track all of the companies... That our experts have spoken about and the stocks that we speak about on mentored so ren donna sent us a message during the week at contact at equitymates.com she wrote that she's interested in andrew page's formula for valuations which you spoke about in your previous mentored session and would like to know if we can do a worked example using that formula for valuation now donna the good news is that next episode ren comes in with a worked example
0: That's it, I did my homework. I took what he was speaking about and applied it to uh, a company and we go through it. He picks it apart and um, we talk about how we can sort of apply that technique.
3: That will be out next week, yes. Now, if you're interested in valuation, the final piece of good news is that our uh, Value Investor Program, which is an online valuation course that we've done in collaboration with Rask Owen uh, at Rask Australia, uh, is on sale until the end of the financial year. You can get $100 off if you use the code EOFY at checkout. Uh, link will be in the show notes. You can also find a link to it on our Instagram page. Uh, it's a deep dive course and exploration of value investing. Plenty of uh, downloadable resources, videos, podcasts, you name it. By the end of it, you'll have a, a very strong grip on uh on valuation techniques and uh, there's some case studies in there to help you work through it as well. So if that's of interest to you and you want to upskill before the next episode with uh, Andrew and Ren, then check it out. We'll put a link in our show notes. $100 off before the 30th of July. But Ren, that's, uh, that's a wrap. Yeah, sounds good. We'll leave it there and pick it up next week. You have been listening to an Equity Mates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant project. Product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. EquityMates Media operates under an Australian financial services license five four zero six nine seven.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.